Hello, and welcome back to another lovely episode of Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. I'm Jared. And I'm Cosines. No, you're Signs. I'm... But... but I, that's the you whole... told me I had to say... I was second this week. Yeah, but that's not who you are. Oh. Who yeah. am I really? Isn't that the question? Wasn't that the whole This thing is a philosophy I, podcast, right? I heart Huckabees. Who am I really? How am I not me? There we go. How me am I? How am I Miyamoto? You're not Miyamoto. <laughs> well, welcome back, everybody. We took a couple weeks off. To... No, we didn't. We didn't? I didn't. Did you go somewhere fun? Well, I meant from the podcast. We took a vacation from the podcast. Because after 11 weeks, we were just exhausted. Yeah, this this really wears us out. Um. Okay. I'll, I'll no, disagree I'm with that. My head. Yeah. So we've got a few things to talk about. A lot of tangents this week, and we'll get into our main topic. First off, in hold the- on. Well, before we talk about that, what? I want to talk about numbers, numbers, and listenership, numbers. So apparently, we we we've heard you about you know the type of content. Some of you have voted with your downloads. We will never do another E three post show. Yeah. Because that was like the worst downloads of any. We've had three weeks you could listen to it, but nobody even listened to it for yeah. three weeks. So what we're going to do next time is a ton of speculative uh, podcasts about what if Nintendo made a VR machine and it came out tomorrow and we're going to publish that. It still wouldn't have a virtual console. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> Fact. So anyway, I just I wanted to, to remark all of you let us down. We put out this great content for you. You chose not to listen to it, or you just chose that we're no longer relevant after 11 weeks. We, we, we've maybe expired for some of our listeners. We're no longer trending. Yeah. That's... The hashtag signs, cosines, and tangents. Because it's... People are like, this is a really long hashtag. It, it's like 112 of the 140 character <laughs> limit. So, um, so let's get going. Uh, I'm very disappointed in all of you. That's all I'm going to say. Sean. It's okay. We've got a quality podcast this week. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> In Diablo 3's never-ending quest to say, hey, remember Diablo 2, the good one? They, uh, a couple, or last week? Last week? It was last week, yeah. They released the Rise of the Necromancer uh, downloadable content yep. in which you can play as a new class, Necromancer. No, you can play as an old class. Well, it's new. It's new to Diablo 3, but not new to Diablo. But it's not the same as Diablo 2. Well, nothing's the same as Diablo 2, except Diablo 2. So you're still a philosophy podcast. Uh, how is this chair not a chair? <laughs> you just believe it's a chair. There's no actual empirical evidence yeah, that it is a chair. You're defining it as a chair. And, yeah, and your definition of chair and my definition of chair may not be the same. What if we don't see the same green? What if you see a different green than my green and everything that you've learned was green is not? So $14. <laughs> $14. So $14. New class and a couple new areas? Um, The new areas are not part of the expansion. They're, oh, they're just part of the update. Yeah, there was an update. And, and actually, you got to give Blizzard credit for a game that's Three. cloaching, what, four years? Three. Four or four. Three or four. Yeah. It's been out for a while. Um, they're still regularly adding four. new content. It's it's four years. Uh, they're adding regularly new content. They're expanding seasons. the stories. The, well, the season's now being on consoles and stuff like that. But um, I don't know. I'm 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 happy. Did you buy it? 
Uh, I have not had a chance to, but I will. Um, Sean just got a sports update. The sports ball team did sports. Um, no, Windows Defender says my laptop <laughs> is uh, safe. Update, Sean. It's very important that you update. Okay. Um, <clears throat> patch, patch, patch. Patch Tuesdays. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get it for sure because I, I tried the Witch Doctor uh-huh. when a game came out. wasn't for me. I ended up playing as a mage, which I don't normally play as mages in Diablo 3. You didn't want to play as a laser mage? I did play as laser mage. Freeze beam. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely picking it up because Diablo 2 Necromancer was, that's where it so was. So I've played, I and I bought it for the console. I haven't bought it for my PC yet. But um, because I, you know, need to keep buying things multiple times for all of the Yeah, console. you've got to buy it more than once. Yeah. Well, so I bought it for the PS4 because I figured... Maybe one day in the future, you and I would actually play together again on the PS4 because we've actually played Diablo 3 on the PS4 together. You can play games as other people? I I don't know. Okay. I've heard. Okay. I'll just try Um, that. They're really stupid bots Mm. because smart bots do things you would expect. Stupid bots act like people. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so I put a few hours in, started a new Necromancer character. Uh, you've got the typical Diablo three grind. If you want it, you can start from scratch in the story and go on. Uh, I have the ability to just go straight to adventure mode in my games. So I've been just doing adventure mode and grinding and I am loving the classic new character. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Cool. But the problem I think you're going to find and what I've been reading about is that, uh, a lot of people have already figured out how to min max the builds and, I can tell you, I, I typically play um, a monk or or demon hunter. Those are my favorite classes. And I don't have to do anything. I, I started this out on like, uh, I forget, I think it was on master difficulty with a brand new character, which normally you wouldn't do because you don't have the gear to survive. Right. With the necromancer, I've had no problem at all. Hmm. I just blow up corpses and they kill everything. And... Yeah, it seems like one of those things that's fun for people that have played the game. may not be a good thing to start out with. Yeah, if you've not played Diablo 3 before and you're getting in at this Ultimate Evil, Evil Ultimate Edition, or the Immortal Ultimate Evil Edition, or whatever they're calling the newest package. Hey, Sean, I, this is a little pro tip. Uh, I, I read this somewhere, just so you know. Never awaken an ancient evil. It's not a good <laughs> idea. I don't know if you knew that. You shouldn't do that. Just, you know, if you have the chance, don't do it. Well, the good news is we don't live on sanctuary where um, those types of things can happen. We live on our earth where nothing evil ever comes from another dimension. It only comes from humans. Wow. I got deep. Again, this is a philosophy podcast this week. Anyway, so I recommend it. I'm having fun. There's a lot of uh, kind of pushback about the fact that it was – you know, 15 bucks for essentially a character class. Yeah. But, you know, new content does cost money. Yeah, I mean, it, it adds life to the game that's already been out there for a while, so. And it's something people wanted. It isn't, it doesn't seem like an egregious cash grab. This is not horse armor. Horse armor 7.0. Yeah, well, Bethesda's, well, we talked a little bit about that in our E3 podcast, but Bethesda's always had a way to micro- transactionize and kind of try and monetize things that traditionally people wouldn't have paid for. And they've been somewhat successful with it, but um, I don't think Blizzard's ever done that. In my opinion, maybe with world of Warcraft a little bit, 
Yeah. With amounts and things like that. Microtransactions. Yeah, but... Auction house. With Diablo, though, it's almost like they, they give you this huge sandbox to play in, and you can just keep playing it, and you don't ever have to buy more. It's a fun game, and... You know, Plenty of stuff to do. And you don't need the Necromancer. If you're worried about spending $15, go get your Starbucks, and then... You'll have spent $17 on a, a venti latte mm-hmm. instead of buying a necromancer for 15 <laughs> All right, that's Diablo 3. Next on our list. Yeah, so, so I added this on the list this yeah. week, which probably leaves you perplexed about why I would do something like this. Uh, yeah, but it's going to lead into our main topic, so hey. Okay, so this week there was um, some news out there about a fan-created... Um, Mega Man Maker called Mega Maker, which allows you to make your own Mega Man levels and then share them with other people who can then play them just like Super Mario Maker. And whenever I see a Mega Man thing, I always figure I should flag it because you're going to talk about it if I don't flag it. Yeah. Um, But this is... uh, Did you see a release date on this? I'm trying to remember if I saw it in my notes. Mm -hmm. Can check real quick. Yeah, we have a link in the in the podcast notes to this, but um, they uh, are basically giving you the tool set to build your own Mega Man levels. Because guess who's not building Mega Man levels for you? Um, Capcom. Yes, they they just want to sell toys. Yeah, but we've got great games like Mighty Number no. Nine out there that will. Why are you bringing this up to torture yourself? <laughs> So You're the one actually, who bought it. I actually, didn't buy that. It's actually out. Mega Man, Mega Man is available okay. for download right now. Um, I guess I haven't. I've watched the trailer, but I guess my Mega Man is a platformer with really tight levels. You know, it, it really iterates on. Here's an obstacle. Here's a harder version of that obstacle, and then it moves on to here's a new obstacle. Sort of like that. But there's more to it than that, um, it, which sets Mega Man out against something like a Mario Brothers, which is a pure platformer. Uh, which is that it's often about the order you execute the game. So in Mega Man, you fight the villains and right. then you gain their power. So there's always a strategy around that. How do you do that in this? Yeah, and that's that's the other thing. Again, that's not necessary for Mega Man. You can play it in whatever order you want. It's just really it's, hard sometimes. It's hard, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, can you create your own Robot Masters? Do they have a giant matrix of all the robot masters and what their weaknesses are cross games. And also reminds me of um, Mega Man, the Wily Wars, not mm-hmm. released in the U S it was like a remake of the first three games. Yep. And at the end they had an additional tower where you could go and you could choose any of the weapons from the first three games to, hmm. to fight the final battle. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's a cool idea. Yeah. Mega Man needs that sort of love. Um, but I think we'll talk more about that in the uh, main topic. Okay. Well, yeah. So we'll just recognize if you're interested in this and maybe it's you want to create some levels. It's out there, available for download. Yeah, it's, a, it's an open source. Well, not open source. It's a free product published on the web. And, and I would say download it now. Yeah, <laughs> before it gains any attention. Exactly. Um, Next. Next. Summer Games Done Quick. Did you watch this, Sean? You know I did, because you watched it with me. That's how you introduce a topic sometimes. You say, oh, did you see this? Oh, oh, oh we're yeah, supposed to have this back and forth banter, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yes, Jared, I did. 
Summer Games Done Quick, or just Games Done Quick in general, um, if you've not heard of it, is a charity fundraising event where they live stream marathon um, of just tons of games, and they have a bunch of the best speedrunners um, in the world come and basically break these games and play them as fast as possible through either using exploits. Sometimes they play games without using glitches, but let's talk about something else here. This is a live streaming event for video games that raised $1.7 million for doctors without borders. That's the power of gaming. Yeah. Gamers may not leave their basements if you trust the stereotype, but apparently they have a lot of money to throw around when they watch people on the internet play video games. Yeah. And I'm not a huge fan of speedrunners. I, I I get the strategy and I understand why people enjoy it. And this is the first one I actually sat down and really watched. I've known about this for a few years. And we were together last weekend for a little while and, and kind of just both of us exhausted from other things that were going on, which led to us not recording a podcast. And... Um, we sat there and we watched what was the super no well we watched Super Mario Brothers one two and three and then lost levels and yeah it was a relay race where they had an individual runner for each of those games and it was to get through all five yeah all the way up to Super Mario World yeah and uh, it was interesting to see how that kind of played out and there was a head to head competition between three teams and then we watched a um, what was it? Uh, Metroid, Super Metroid, and well, there was two Metroid. Metroid games. Fusion. There was Fusion, and then there was Super Metroid after that. And these were Saturday evening, right into the late hours, early morning of Sunday. And then I don't know about you, because I'd left and gone home, and I started watching some more of this. But somebody did a Final Fantasy VII speed run overnight. And yeah, they always do those really long ones overnight. And it was probably a minimum of like six hours or something. Yeah, it was uh, seven hours, yeah. and there were three people. And they got all the way through Final Fantasy VII, which is a three-disc, like, 200-hour game in, like, six hours. Yeah. Um, but, so this is interesting to see how people understand these games so well. And the, I guess, in most cases, accidental glitches that are introduced in programming because people... Game designers and game testers and QA people don't try and break the games the way the speedrunners do. It's like shortly, and we talked about this a few episodes back, Breath of the Wild came out and there was somebody who'd figured out how to get to the end boss fight in like 35 minutes on a game that was meant to take you hundreds of hours. Um, yeah, they actually had a speed run of Breath of the Wild. and I think it was like 47 minutes to beat it. And uh, just the beginning part where they were you know, doing all the shrines, it was like, how do we get through the shrine the fastest? Like, you're not playing the game as it was ever intended to be played. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this is something we can talk a little bit more about in our in our topic this week. Yeah. But the thing we really wanted to call out with this news item was the fact that this is a huge charity event. And they didn't even raise as much in this one with $1.7 as they did in the last one during the winter. Right. And they do these twice a year. Um, yep. So if you're at all interested in seeing some of the craft of speedrunning and – it, uh, and I would say check it out. There's some really entertaining people that are actually telling you what they're doing or explaining stuff, or they're just explaining the history of the game they're playing and sort of how it came to fruition. And, and the ones where they have commentators because the the speedrunners need to focus on the games, right. usually the, the people commentating are speedrunners. So they can explain to you what the technique this person's doing and why they do it at this point, and things like pixel locks and frames and... 
It's and really, when you really when you cool. see your favorite games or favorite nostalgia games, and you're like, "Oh man, it took me so long to beat that," and you see them like just warp to the end using some sort of oh yeah, <laughs> you're just like, "What?" Yeah, or they you know in Super Mario they're using the cape and they just fly through the entire level, and you're like, <laughs> "I never thought about doing that. <laughs> Why would you do that?" And and there's just game after game after game. It's not just the Mario games. I mean, they played all They play a lot of, of Nintendo. They play a lot of other. They play modern games. They yeah. play retro games. They play games that were never released in the U.S. I was exposed to a couple through Games Done Quick. Uh, Pepsi Man. I don't know if we've <laughs> talked about it on this show. Uh, um, yeah, that was the whole reason you got a new laptop. Was to play <laughs> Pepsi Man. And uh, it's, 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 it's interesting, and it, it just shows you it's nice to see you know, game gamers doing something for good. So, okay. Well, sticking with the classic games motif. Yeah. Let's talk let's, about Castlevania. What, Castlevania. You mean that awesome pachinko machine that Konami published right next to metal gear survive <laughs> Castlevania. One of the longest running series in video gaming. Yes. Finally got an animated version written by Warren Ellis and produced by Adi Shankar. Um, who basically Adi Shankar and Warren Ellis put some of this dialogue online, like gotta be three or four years ago where they said they were, they wanted to make a Castlevania series rated R Castlevania. And and it is absolutely rated R. This is not a children's show. Um, it's about vampires and demons and stuff. So, you know, not exactly family fair. Um, I don't know. You said you've watched, uh, so there's four episodes. You watched about half of them. A lot of the feedback people have been getting, and, and and I don't like to get into sticky subjects on the podcast. We like to generally think keep things pretty light um, because we're talking about video games. It's not the end of the world. But wow, does this have a very anti-religion, organized religion kind of focus? It's kind of in your face the whole time. And yeah, so that's another content warning. Probably if if you're really really devoutly christian you and and you normally don't get offended by things that attack christianity this has some lines and some things in there that may not make you very happy but in general i think it's a great story the dialogue's really good and it's only four episodes which yeah and from from where i've read where it ends i haven't seen it you've seen the rest all of it yep. um i binged it in like it, it, two hours. I mean, it almost leads into what they're doing next. And it kind of makes you want to see more. Also, it's supposed to be an adaptation of Dracula's curse, Dracula's curse, which yep. was the third one, which was a prequel to the original. Castle it is. Union, it, so. It's pretty close to the concepts of that. And it introduces, you know, series favorite character, Alucard and which Trevor Belmont. Dracula spelled backwards. The son of Dracula. Yeah. Um, and so they do at the, I, I'm not going to spoil it, but, they're, they're, they introduced the, the series' basic characters. They set up the is premise. Grant in it? What? Is Grant in it? Not yet. Okay. That's what I was hoping. There's a lot of discussion about when Grant is going to be in okay. it. Okay. Because they haven't gotten to Dracula's castle, so Grant couldn't be in this part. Right. Because he... And, and for those of you who are Castlevania fans, um, and if you've played Dracula's Curse, Grant plays an interesting role. And uh, he's a captive in Dracula's castle, and he's a cursed character who becomes part of the party. He's a thief. Um, they don't get that far, basically. Okay. They get to the very start of the quest, and they set up the background and kind of... Do you think... You know, I know they want this to go on along. They've already announced that season two is going to be a thing. Season two is going to be eight more episodes. Do you think... Because Castlevania has a long 
chronology canon mm-hmm. um a timeline that uh it's fairly consistent actually fairly consistent yeah um do you think they'll ever get to symphony of the night you would i would just like collapse i know that's what i was asking for um so i do think they will get to symphony of the night and another reason they introduce alucard here alucard is the main character in symphony of the night and it takes place a long time after this right. story but uh so it's funny everybody's talking about how this is four episodes and then season two is going to be eight episodes and i'm going yeah that's not really the way animation works they ordered all of these episodes and probably these four were the only ones that were available for their airing date. And so they released the four to hit their air date to kind and of tease everybody. The remaining, cause yeah, animation series on Netflix have been traditionally 12, 13 episodes. So. And it, what's eight plus four. Um, yeah, wait a minute. This is a trick. <laughs> I was just told there'd be no math. Exactly. 12, 12 episodes, which is a standard order. That's the same number of this episode. Episode 12. It's, it's kismet. Which is the context. Dead air. Um, Uh, Anyway, so if you're a fan of Castlevania and you can handle a lot of blood and gore and you have about two hours and don't mind uh, anticipation or patience, as Captain America says at the end of Spider-Man. Stop. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's not my fault. We're two weeks. That's past the statute of limitations (laughs) on protecting for spoilers. Uh, no, and then come on, that's an, that's a post credit scene that has nothing to do with the, the movie. Um, go check it out. And if you're not a Net- Netflix viewer, you should subscribe to Netflix, who should be giving us ad revenue every time we talk about this. Netflix is a great place to watch your favorite TV shows and new original content. Actually, not Cha-ching. so great place for TV shows anymore. Okay, stop. Okay, because they're only doing the original joke. content. Oh, my gosh, Sean. All the TV ruined... shows have moved over to Hulu. Like, Futurama is now exclusive on Hulu. Sean ruins everything. My name is not Adam. That is a great show. That's on <laughs> Spike. That's a great show. Moving on. So, we talked a few episodes back about how it was rumored that Nintendo was doing a little sequel to the nes classic called the super nes classic well sure enough here it is with less games it's got 22 games well they're bigger but here's the thing they're twice the bits it is twice the bits it's got a really good lineup of games you've gotten uh final fantasy Fantasy three great rpgs no chrono trigger Eh. undisputably one of the best rpgs of all time Undisputably? Um, undisputably. You mean indisputably? Indisputably. Did I say it? No. <laughs> Anyhow, let's talk about the real thing. Now, uh, the thing uh, that made Jared kind of pass out when he read it. I, I literally did almost pass out. So when some someone was asking me about the NES Classic, they're like, what do you think about it? You know, it's got a bunch of games. And I said, yeah, the NES Classic's great. It's a cool collector's item. But all those games have been released in one way or another. There, Just there wasn't, not on the Switch. Yeah, there was, well, yeah, not on the Switch. <laughs> I mean, they've all been re-released through the Wii con- Virtual Console or 3DS Virtual Console or Wii U Virtual Console or through yeah. compilation packages or something. Um, and I said, that's great, but it'd be nice to see games that we've never seen from Japan translated. Like Mother. Mother 3. Yeah. Um, or maybe something that wasn't released. And then sure enough, I had to say that and they're releasing. They heard you, Jared. They did. Star Fox two for the SNES. Um, Star Fox. They still make those games. Yeah. (laughs) 
and here's the thing about Star Fox 2. It was in development. It was about finished around the same time that the N64, Nintendo 64 came out. Yes. And that was when the real push for real, well, at the time, high fidelity uh, 3D games were coming out. And they were afraid that it was going to look like an inferior product. It wasn't going to sell well. The game was practically done, translated. um, And the team that developed it, they just kind of moved on, made their own game studio. um, And it just sat there. There have been ROMs of the unfinished game out there for years. And a lot of the concepts in Star Fox 2 were, were later released in different Star Foxes, like the whole Star Fox, uh, the R-Wing turning into a chicken walker was from Star Fox 2. Hmm. Um, the whole strategy combat of kind of choosing what armadas you were going to attack later when in the Star Fox command. Um, but we're going to have it. Finally. Finally. Like 30 years later. 30 years later. Is it going to have a huge impact? Is it like a? It can revitalize game? a dead series. Yeah, a series that died it, in the eighties. A, a series that we haven't seen a game from in like years, twenty years. So, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to say good game in yeah. twenty years, because you know Star Fox Adventures wasn't even a Star Fox game, and Star Fox Zero wasn't even a Star <laughs> Fox game. <laughs> so. This is going to make the Super NES Classic definitely a collector's item. Unless they release Star Fox 2 on the non-existent Switch Virtual Console. Right. Um, you're talking about a game that was never released that's going to be only available on this. So now you have a reason to buy it. Yeah. So this got me thinking about, okay, we predicted they were going to do this. We knew, Everybody knew it was coming. It was kind of a duh thing. The next up in this revolutionary line would be the N64. There's no way they're going to do an N64 one. Well, here's what I would say about that. Have you looked at an N64 game lately? They don't look great. But Super NES still looks good. It looks fantastic. Even the Mode 7 graphics, that's cool. I I can't think of an art style on N64. I would say Super Mario 64 is the one that's closest to standing up to today just because of the bright colors. Ocarina of Time looks like a muddy mess. Yeah. Star Fox 64 looks like a muddy mess. Um, Shadows of the Empire is horrible. Oh, God, yeah. There's, I can't imagine everybody was so excited about the game. Goldfinger? So unless, unless, Goldfinger has been remade. Uh, yeah. So unless they released a N64 classic edition Goldeneye. where they Goldeneye. had redone all the games and up them. Yeah. Um, I don't see that happening. Well, and then let's move into the GameCube is the next one. Can't really do that. I think the next one, if they did anything, it would be the Game Boy Classic Edition. That makes more sense to me, rather than going with, like, the Wii U Classic. (laughs) Remember the Wii U? No, because nobody bought them. (laughs) Just like the Wii. Well, everybody bought Wiis, but nobody Everybody had a Wii. Your grandma had a Wii. Well, that's because she was trying to play sports. Sports. Anyhow, so tell us what you think about that. Are you guys going to try to get one? They've said they're going to be in higher production than the NES Classic. Does it even matter? Do you want one? This one actually comes with two controllers, two wired controllers. Um, uh-huh. And it's $20 more than the last one. Uh-huh. Cool. Anyhow, and Sean. There, there's no opportunity for just making a retro pie with a bunch of ROMs that you... That's not, that's not legal, Sean. It's not legal. You're right. Um, actually, it would be fairly legal for you, considering the number of games that are sitting on your shelf. I don't own Star Fox 2. 
Um, let's talk about a little movie that came out recently. Yeah. Um, summer, um, indie film. Yeah. It involves a man that can do anything an arachnid can do. Is he a man or a boy? He's a young man. Young man. Where's he live? Queens. Is that a thing? I don't know. Sean, Spider-Man, Homecoming, Coming Home. Spider-Man Homecoming was amazing. Loved it. I mean, like, Spider-Man 2 was my favorite Spider-Man prior to this. The Raimi Spider-Man, not any of the amazing Spider-Man movies. And it's funny, because when I look at the Spider-Man movies, you know, granted, Tobey Maguire pushed the credulity of expecting that he was Peter Parker. Because no 47-year-old man looks like a teenage boy. And, And as much as I enjoyed those films mostly because of Sam Raimi and his kind of take on Spider-Man. Um, there was a lot of problems with the, the acting and the characters and some of the dialogue, especially as you got into the third movie, which was so interfered by with the studio that it was overloaded and kind of became the what's wrong with superhero films was Spider-Man three. That's all you have to say. So let's reboot it in three years. So they reboot it and they bring in Andrew Garfield, who I think did, an amazing job, no pun intended, of being Spider-Man. And I think they did a much better job of kind of getting the quips with Spider-Man. Still, though. If but you it go back, wasn't there. If you go back and watch those movies, there were more quips by Spider-Man in the Civil War scene than both Spider-Man. But, so that's where I'm going. Yeah. And, but, and then I also couldn't buy Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker. But, he, but he's he just too cool, himself. right? Let's, let's, let's just repeat myself, repeat myself. Let's go. Yeah. And then, so now we get Civil War and it introduces Tom Holland as Spider-Man and everybody that I know loved that scene because it was the ultimate superhero movie scene, right? A bunch of superheroes fighting each other for no good reason. And then it introduces Spider-Man. It's kind of a shocker. Well, Homecoming picks up before and after that scene. It shows kind of the journey of, of Peter to Germany and then goes into his own story. And it's kind of a, one thing that they didn't do here, not a retelling of his origin in the traditional sense. So there's no uncle Ben scene. There's no with great power comes great responsibility line uttered by an ancient guy who's married to a hot young Italian chick, which Marissa Tomei is aunt may. It makes me feel old (laughs) because I, she's an amazingly attractive woman and way too young to be playing Aunt May. But if you look at her her chronological age and his, it actually makes perfect sense. Aunt May shouldn't be in her 80s. Um, and every movie series has made Aunt May younger, by the way. Because yeah. Sally Field was Aunt May in yep. the Amazing series. Uh, anyway, before I digress into hot Aunt May, so septuagenarian <laughs> sex or whatever, um, this movie just, you get you feel like he inhabits the role of Peter Parker. He's just as fun and frenetic as he was in Civil War. Uh, it's almost like, and I was talking to um, my wife about this last night as we were walking out of the theater, and I'm like, they finally figured out that a guy who has the powers of a spider should be majorly ADHD. Because Peter is all over the map. He's brilliant, but he's like spastic. Because he's so excited. And, and the one thing that everybody talked about the old Raimi movies in the first Tobey Maguire film, where he's swinging around Brooklyn where there's no actual buildings he could swing on. But you know, he's swinging around Brooklyn just enjoying the fact that he has these powers. 
that sense of joy is just completely a part of this character and it's in this movie so here's a person who's not who has a tragic backstory right there's really bad things have happened to this kid all his life he practically lives in poverty he loses his uncle because of a stupid choice that he makes because he gets kind of overwhelmed with you know the power of having powers and then kind of comes back into himself they didn't have to tell the uncle ben story this show effectively does it without shoving it down your throat the whole movie is about Peter kind of coming into the idea that, you know, who is he going to be and who does he want to be? And with these powers, does he have things that he has to do that other people don't deal with? The other thing I would say, there's a certain amount of a counter in this film, and I'm trying to avoid as many spoilers as I can because I know that a lot of people haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. I'm just talking about the sense of the film. Um, they really do a great job of kind of showing you that Peter Parker is a really good person. There are a number of situations where, like, and I again, I'm, I'm avoiding spoilers, but he's given the offer to amp his powers up and basically do immediate kills. And this comes up two or three times in the movie that he could just take these people out. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to kill anybody. That's not, no, we're not going to kill anybody. As a matter of fact, I'm not spoiling much here, but at the big climactic battle, which you all know has to happen at the end of the film, when he's defeated the villain, he actually goes back in and saves him. I mean, he could have just, I mean, he's beaten badly, but he survives and he finally overcomes his adversary and the adversary is unconscious and very likely would die if he was left there. And you see Peter Parker walk over and, you know, basically struggle to free the villain and carry him off the battlefield, which results in a villain in a Marvel movie who didn't die. Another great thing. Why do superhero movies always insist on killing off their villains? Uh, just Marvel. seems like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's DC disposable. does it too. DC do this too. Hey, hey Zod. So, Zod. Oh, don't get me started about Zod. Um, <laughs> So one of the things I was reading online about this was not only do they kind of get away with the Uncle Ben origin story, is now you have uh, Peter Parker who's grown up in the world of the Avengers, of right. the MCU. So his aspirations, his desires, he wants what to he join wants the to Avengers. be are relatable because you've seen what he's seen. You yep. you've get that. So when oh, they do a great job of really making you feel like this is something that you would do if you lived in the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, so there are other than, I mean, we all know Iron Man's in this film, right? And Tony Stark is a big character in the film and the story and kind of the development of Peter Parker, but there's other members of the Avengers that show up in the movie and you just get the sense that they're, in the film. Now I will spoil one scene, which I laughed for like 10 minutes when this came on. So this is a, this is a movie set in high school. It really is. It, it's almost like a, a, um, John Hughes movie. And there's some, Oma, I've Oma seen a lot of, uh, correlation. They're saying it's yeah. a superhero. John. Hughes well, and they movie. walk into to the dance and they're playing eighties music. <laughs> and I just looked over at my wife and I'm like, you know that that's because of the John Hughes thing. And she's like, yeah, I guess it is. But there was one line, so they're sitting in the gym and they're watching a presentation about the President's Physical Fitness Council, which is, is an American teenager. I think most of us remember some version of that, right, yeah. in, in high school. 
And the gym teacher's like, here, here, watch this thing, blah, blah, blah. And it's Captain America talking about the importance of physical fitness. <laughs> and the gym teacher at the end goes, well, I guess he's kind of a war criminal now, but, you know, you still got to watch it. <laughs> and I was just like, there are little lines, throwaway yeah. lines like that through this whole film. The sense of humor is just really, really omnipresent. Um, and it does a great job playing homage to the history of Peter Parker as a high school student. So there's not some of the traditional things we've seen in the other movies here. He's in high school. He's a sophomore in high school. He's going through the things. He's not sophomore. just graduating and going off to college. No. He's, and he's in high school the whole time. Yeah. You know, and he's just, it's a lot of fun and, and highly recommend it. Oh, and by the way, it made like 250 bazillion zillion dollars in its opening weekend. And that was the international plus the U.S. box office. So do you think Spider-Man's going to stay in the MCU? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think everybody's happy with this arrangement right now, especially. And I think this is a movie that's got legs. It's not going to fade. Um, and, and Marvel's done really good this year. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was just so much fun to watch. They're moving away. They're kind of the counter to the Dark DC and universe. serious, yeah. Uh, which Wonder Woman wasn't completely dark and serious, but it had its yeah. kind of gravitas. Yeah. And we have seen early hints that Justice League may be a little bit lighter, but it's still, I mean, it's the Avengers, even, right? Well, so, it's, well, even if you look at the trailer, it's just visibly dark. It's yeah. just like, hey, let's turn down the exposure setting. Yeah, everything's a little more saturated than it needs to be, so it's gray and yeah. dark. And Well... I hope to check that out soon, Sean. Yeah, maybe one of these days you'll go to these things we call movies. Movies. Oh, I saw it in 3D, by the way. Um, The action was good in 3D, but I think it probably would be better in 2D. It was a little blurry. All right. There you go. 2D, Spider-Man. Go see it. Uh, A couple more tangents before we get into our main topic. Uh, Nintendo is ending production of the... Hold on. Let's get this straight. The new Nintendo 3DS in Japan, and that's the smaller new Nintendo 3DS is ending. The big new Nintendo 3DS, the XL, is still in production, and so is the new Nintendo 2DS 2DS 3DXLL. But question here is, is it on its way out? Is Is this the beginning of Switch lands, which is the one place? They've said they're going to support the uh, 3DS until twenty the end of 2018. So, yes. So, I mean, and that came out in what, 2013? I think it was, yeah, that sounds about right. So, I mean, it's going on. Uh, the 3DS? No, it's older than that. No, 2011. Yeah. It came out the year before the Wii U. Yeah. So, it's going to have like a seven-year life cycle for a handheld. That's insane. I don't know. Do we so- care? I, I'm just kind of, you know, Nintendo's not saying it. They're not saying, oh, the Switch is where we're going. Hey, they also didn't say they were going to stop producing the uh, Game NES Boy Advance. Classic or the Game Boy Advance. Until they did. Until they just said, yeah, we've ended oh, yeah. production. So take take that what you will. Um, lastly, on the tangent list, Sean didn't know about this, but we nope. played the trailer for him earlier. Uh, there's a new ToeJam & Earl game coming out, I think, in August. Um, yes. And it looks awesome. It looks like the original Toe Jam and Earl has been updated. I'm just wondering if this will be on the new Sega Genesis Classic. <laughs> it's coming to the Switch, surprisingly. It's coming to all the consoles. Well, and PC. Sega doesn't make hardware anymore. No. 
So, but Atari is. <laughs> you didn't hear that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. I'm, Atari's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so looks good. Looks like classic Toe Jam and Earl action. Yeah, there's no panic um, on Funkatrunk here. No 2D platforming. Um, some of you listeners may not remember Toe Jam and Earl. It was a Sega Genesis game. I think it's its own genre. I can't think of any. Game it's that- a isometric two and a half D uh, platform search search game because you're looking game? for parts of your yeah. Spaceship. You're not really attacking enemies. You're mostly avoiding. You run enemies. from them. Yeah. 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 And it's just the goal to get to the top. There's no boss in that one, right? You just get to the end. Uh, you have to find all the pieces and then put the ship back together. Yeah, you put the sheep. It's, and so I guess you could, you could probably consider it one of the first collect-a-thons at that point. It's maybe. definitely a, it, it's the predecessor, predecessor. to survival horror. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're going to go into our main topic. And a couple of you have said that you don't like mid-music in the episode. So to that I say, sorry, we're still going to do it. So, Sean. Who said that? I want to know. I want their names. I'll give you their name after this episode. (laughs) They said they did not like when music was in the middle of a podcast. It's, it's called an audio break. It's meant to separate and give a palate cleanse before you move on to your main topic, by the way. It's a technique that's been used in radio for years. Well, I guess radio's dead, so... Okay, anyway. Anyhow, today's main topic, I wanted to talk about... We kind of talked about it with uh, Mega Man Maker and um, Games Done Quick. I wanted to talk about hacks, fan games, and exploits. Um, sort of, when the fans take control of games... Is it a good thing? Can it be done for good? Or is it just a weird life of its own after a game's published? So is this the philosophical art question of who owns the art, the artist or the viewer? I don't I don't want to get into that discussion. Maybe we can. Um, because, I mean, obviously, once games get in the hands of other people, just like art or movies. Or... But they're violating the intent of the publisher and the right. copyright holder by doing many of these things. Right, absolutely. So there's an interesting legality question here if you're looking at strictly a commercial aspect of this. Right, right. Um, is fan-created content worth it? I mean, if it... So, so, let's, so let's... whose perspective do you want to take on this? Oh, you want me to choose a... I well, I'll, choose the, I'll take one, you take the other. I'm going to take the perspective of... I only find it fun 1% of the time. 90, 99% of the time, it's boring. It's like it's a waste of time. So you're saying that the problem isn't that these things are available or that fans are doing it. You're saying the problem is that most fans don't do it well. Exactly. And in general, isn't that because most fans aren't game designers? Absolutely. I would also challenge you as somebody who studied game design... Hey, I actually have academic credentials here. No, I don't because I didn't pay the extra $37,000 to get a piece of paper. But um, (laughs) every game designer starts somewhere. And if you look at fan-created content, and I know we're specifically kind of triggered by Super Mario Maker and and those types of things where user-created content has become a big thing. But let's take a step back and look at something like RPG Maker. Or these yeah, game engines. RPG Maker. There's been plenty of really good RPGs. That have there are tons of yeah. 
really crappy attempts by people to learn how to write an RPG. People who play so many RPGs, they think they can write them, and they just ultimately either don't have the creativity, or maybe they just haven't figured out how to use the tools well enough to realize their story or their game systems, or they think that RPGs are all just about what they experience as a player. And I think that's probably what leads to the syndrome that you are seeing in kind of your position. Yeah. Is that it takes a lot of work to make a video game. And it takes even more work to make something worth playing. Well, it, despite what uh, Steam might show you with their 8,000 useless games that were thrown together and put up on the Steam store, um, there's a reason, and uh, you're probably going to pass out after I say this, and I've, I've said that like four times tonight, it's very trite, but there's a reason people like Nintendo curate their libraries the way that they do now. They didn't used to. The original NES was very much about how much do you pay me to get a game licensed and, and put out on my console. But if you think back to the original video game crash with Atari, it's because there was so much demand for new games that Atari it didn't wasn't, really It care. wasn't demand for good games. It was just demand of, hey, give me another game. I'm done with this one. Give me another one. So your question of whether it's worth it, I think I'll counter with, this is the training wheels by which the next generation of designers are going to realize how to do this job. Yeah, and I, I totally understand that. Um, it, it gives people the ability to see, you know, even if it's controlled somewhat, what it actually takes to make a good level. If you went into Super Mario Maker and played some of the online levels, a lot of people call that the Super Mario Torture Chamber because... Well, because they think that's what makes a good level is <laughs> making it as painful as possible and, or as tricky um, as possible. You know, I'm a huge Nintendo fan, and I feel like... Really? Yeah, I think so. Huh. I didn't know that about you. Level design is, I think, one of their strong points out of any of Absolutely. Games. You know, out of, you know, if it's whatever game it is, the level is usually not the problem. But um, that's also with the understanding that the people who are designing those levels had lots of iterations before they showed up in your game console. Exactly. A lot of uh, drafts, a lot of redos, a lot of things thrown to the wasteland. And they understood the mechanics. Right. And they know what it means to put this here and, and how do you time enemies and, and special blocks and special How jumps. the level teaches you is a big one. How right. the level teaches you the game mechanics through level design. And the kind of the progression of a game. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we've seen a lot of creative tools built into games now. Um Bethesda put uh, what they call Snap Map and Doom to mm -hmm. make your own Doom levels. Yep. Um, we've seen Bethesda also do the mod integrations to consoles where people can develop their mods. They're making a whole marketplace, and Sean knows how he feels about that. Um, yes, Sean does know how he feels about that. <laughs> we've seen <laughs> other things where another thing that we see a lot of are fan games. And I would separate fan games from... Well, they're all related, but fan games are sort of like, what if? They're the sort of what if scenarios so that, that... They're playing in the universe with some of the same tools. They have a respect for the games, and often you'll see they have really good design, level design. And actually, I didn't put it on here, but I'll lead into another thing here. Um, one I had on here was Mega Man vs. Street Fighter. It was released a few years ago. Totally fan-made game. Capcom had nothing to do with it. Capcom saw it. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, we'll help publish this. We like this enough. It plays respect to our IP enough that we don't feel like you're 
messing with it and we support it and we want to put it out there. And we could make money off of it. And ideally we could make money off of that. Again, we come back to that core concept. Video games are not a charity. They are commercial products. Exactly. Um, we've seen other things like that with, uh, what was it? Super Mario crossover. That's, mm-hmm. I love Super Mario crossover. That's one of the ones where I would say it's just neat because it's like, Hey, it's Super Mario brothers, but Hey, you can play a Samus. You can blast a Goomba in the face with a nice. Well, game. and that's where you get into ROM hacks rather than an actual game. Right. Where, where somebody has hacked in, you know, Link into Super Mario Brothers. Right. And does it make it a challenging game? Is it a balanced game? Absolutely not. But it's still <laughs> fun. Yeah. Um, the ability to blow up the Goombas actually plays counter to what you want to have happen in the game in some <laughs> levels. Right. There's some levels you can't get through unless you exploit the enemies the way Mario would exploit them. Right. So, again, taking somebody from a completely different game with completely different capabilities and putting them into... It's an interesting combination, but... It doesn't always make for a good game. Right. In August, Sega is releasing Sonic Mania. Yes. It's a return to 2D Sonic, and we talked about the Sonic cycle before. But here's the thing about Sonic Mania. It's not made by anybody from Sonic Team or Sega. It's made by a conglomeration of three individuals that did fan ROM hack games of the original Genesis games. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're making a completely new game, sort of remixed levels. Um, and I will say I'm on the Sonic hype schedule again because it looks really good. It looks like they took what made Sonic good at the time. Well, and, and this kind of goes back to there's been some fan-made Castlevania games. There's been some fan-made Metroid games. Oh, and, that's another thing we should talk about. But go ahead. But so you've got these fans who really understand. And we go back to the speedrunners, right? Speedrunners dissemble a game to figure out how to get through it fastest and exploit it. But that is also because they understand the capabilities of the enemies and the monsters and the levels and how the patterns. So if you get those sort of fans creating new levels, you're likely to get a fairly good result sometimes, which is a higher percentage than the pure fan who doesn't understand that stuff. Right. Now they can still, lightning can still strike, right? You can still have somebody who doesn't understand the nuances and can't name every single exploit, but can who can build a good level because it's like music, right? The flow of a platforming level plays like sheet music, and sometimes you have to understand which note to play at which time. It's the same kind of creative leap when it talk you talk about game design. So, yeah, I mean, we've got fans who do simple things like, oh, I figured out how to put this, you know, ROM of... Super Mario Brothers on my ROM programmer and I can do sprite replacements or I can change this or I can rearrange blocks. And that's where this law started, right? Is there wasn't something like Super Mario Maker where you had the assets and could put them in there. Yeah, if you talk about Super Mario World, all the Kaizo levels that mm-hmm. existed before Mario Maker, people just deconstructing Super Mario World and making levels on the highest level of difficulty and watching people play through them. Yeah. And knowing that if they use certain exploit techniques and they knew how the frame locks worked and everything like that, they could float through a level and, and exploit, you know, hit frames. And, and again, this all came out when you're watching like games done quick, but it's, it's interesting to see that there's different reasons that people do this. So there's the competitive kind of speed run kind of challenge. You know, I want to have, you know, cred for creating the hardest level ever made for super Mario maker. 
and then I want to see who can beat it. And if I make the hardest level that is beatable, then I, I get some credit for making the level, you get credit for beating my level, and everybody wins. That's the competitive element. But there's also the fan element, which is the acknowledgement that maybe the publisher has moved on from that style of that game. They don't usually abandon a lot of the big franchises. It's almost like people have been asking Nintendo for over a decade to make another 2D Metroid. Yeah. And fans went out and did it with uh, AM2R, another Metroid 2 remake is what it stands for, but it a really well done Metroid 2 remake, and sure enough, Nintendo Well, Nintendo out. very... Aggressively, Very yeah, they they aggressively protect their so. intellectual property, and Bethesda does too, actually. Um, so if you were to take like and and you weren't an officially licensed, I remember I did I was doing an article for Filefront a few years ago, and I was doing a series of um, traditional RPG pen and paper RPG conversions of video game stuff, and I had this idea for an article series, and I, I reached out to Pete Hines at Bethesda. And I said, hey, Pete, I'm thinking about, you know, kind of talking about how would you run a, a um, D&D game or a science fiction game using, you know, the trappings of Fallout or Skyrim. And it wasn't Skyrim. I think it was Oblivion at the time. But I said, you know, Elder Scrolls or, or Fallout universe. And he said, well, I think that would be interesting. You can't do that. And I said, well, it would be a fan creation. I'm not claiming any copyright. It, it would be published. Out there. He goes, no. We have to defend our copyright. You cannot do that. Our lawyers will come after you. And he was saying this as a friend. He wasn't. He wasn't threatening me. Right. Uh, because I reached out as somebody who had conversations with him and yeah, a member of the press. And, and so. that often is the side of the creators compared to the side of the business. Right. The business is going to hold on to their yeah. assets. And so he's like, yeah, we've had a number of people actually approach us about this, and you know, we've actually pursued some fan creators for you know, infringing on our intellectual property. And he's like, just, it's not worth it. You know, if you want to do something that's like it, but not easily attributable, more power to you, but you can't make any direct claims on our stuff. And I actually had that same conversation a few more times with a few different publishers and creators because I was like, but this is free publicity, you know, from my perspective and the perspective is a creative person having this conversation as a fan of their properties. I'm like, but it can only help you. And their view is, well, yeah, that may be true, but it also introduces obligation and liability from a legal perspective. Right. And we, if we don't, in, in U.S. copyright court, and this is something that nobody wants to talk about because it's boring, right? Unless you're a lawyer, copyright lawyer. Um, if they don't aggressively protect their intellectual property, it weakens the foundation of their ownership. Right. And I mean, you could, this is a different parallel, but, you know, if, Let's say the character of Samus, you know, let's say for some reason a group decides to use her as a mascot or something. Mm -hmm. And there's some controversy with that group that diminishes that property at that point. You know, it's going to be. Well, and we're also harder. seeing a lot of the situation where most of these creators and these publishers and these studios, again, these businesses, um, want to control the message around their content. And so where it gets weird is this whole, we talked about video games being hard to make and people kind of experimenting with the game creation. And sometimes there's good results and sometimes there's bad. There's a parallel to that. 
one that's um I wouldn't say near and dear to my heart. It's kind of something I have a very visceral reaction to when I read about it, which is the fan fiction community. And so you have all these people who who want to tell a story. Not they don't necessarily all want to be authors. Uh, who want to tell new stories about their favorite characters in certain situations. And those can often go very strange places. And the problem is that you can't really stop people from writing a short story on the internet and just publishing it someplace. But once you find out as a content creator or a content owner, uh, intellectual property owner, that somebody is exploiting your content in a way that definitely doesn't fit with your brand or could damage your brand, then you have to attack a fan. And that's bad, right? You don't want your fan base to see you as aggressively attacking them. Nintendo's put itself in this situation more than once. They're still putting themselves in that way every day, especially with their YouTube policies. Well, the YouTube policy, the Twitch policy for a while. Um, We see this struggle between the content creator or property owner and the fans wanting to experience and share their experiences and talk about their experiences and create derivative and again, I'm not a lawyer, and there are specific legal terms about you know work product that's derived from an intellectual property and and all of that. And I don't want to dive into that because I'm sure somebody out there might hear this and tell me I'm completely off base. But at the the root of it is they have to protect their property because it makes them money. And if they don't, they they may want to work with the fans, but something like Super Mario Maker is an example of where they recognize here's a toolbox that we can put you in where it still benefits us we still control the content we reserve the right to remove things that are offensive um they play with the community and they let the community experiment but at the same time they have the hammer to use when somebody gets out of line because the last thing anybody wants to play well i'm speaking for myself i guess not anybody no broad generalization last thing i want to play is super mario penis or somebody just designs penis levels in Super Mario and says, ah, I'm 12, go run through this. But Nintendo, being a very family-friendly, they have no interest in seeing their property used that way. But on that argument, or that point that you're making, it, it takes resources and time and money to then control that environment. Yeah. Um, well, and, and we've seen this with mods, Right, so if you think back in, and I'm Bioware always gets beat up when I bring this up, but if you go back to Neverwinter Nights and uh, the sequel to that, and and some of those types of games where they purposely made the games for the community to be able to make mods, they released their mod tools. Um, with The Witcher was another game though where they released the mod tools. Um, Doom, like you said, the Snap Map. They want the community to experiment because that's where their next level of talent. For some cases. Well, and if you talk about MOBAs, those were completely derived out of mods of RTSs. Yeah. And and involved in a completely new genre that has basically supplanted its original genre. Right. I mean, very few people really are talking about StarCraft as a competitive... Well, as a competitive game is one thing, but the RTS genre has kind of faded, but the MOBA has just become huge. Right. Um, Though I kind of hope it's fading because I'm kind of tired of it myself, but... It, it's it's interesting when you see that, and this kind of comes back to the creative element again. And I know this was your topic, and I've been talking a lot on this one. Hey, it's fine. Um, <laughs> once you release a work product out into the world, a creative endeavor, 
people feel if you do a good job or even a poor job, but somebody out there is going to connect with it. People feel connected to these things and they want to add or experience them. And then they want their view to be experienced. And I think that's the, the genesis of where a lot of this comes from. <coughs> Pardon me. But, uh, it's, it's, it goes back to that philosophical question. Once you've created something, is it really yours anymore? Once the, the, the public begins to consume it and interact with it and internalizes it. And if somebody is driven from that connection to your creation, to create something based on that, isn't that kind of what you're going for as a creator? You want your work to have an impact, to change someone, to... Right. But I think, you know, a lot of artists have trouble with that, right? They want to have an impact. They want to change the world, so to speak. They kind of have an idea of how they want to change the world. It, it goes... That's just, that's just how we are. We like structure and patterns. And, you know, when you talk to somebody or have a conversation with them, you always have an idea of how you want it to go. Mm -hmm. But as we know in life, I'm getting kind of deep here, but I told you this was a philosophy podcast as you kind of, it, it never ends up the way that you thought it would ever happen. So have you ever heard stories of uh, published famous authors um, sitting in on a, a literature critique of their work? Hmm. <laughs> And where they'll be sitting in a college class, and this is, oh God, college literature classes are the worst. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you have an author who writes a story, and it's about a guy who goes to the store and buys a newspaper. And he has an interchange with the guy at the desk and you know where he buys the newspaper, and they talk about the weather, and then he gets his newspaper and he walks out. Very basic story, right? By the time it gets recognized at the college level, You've got these levels of analysis that happen. That What's the symbolism of the newspaper? What's the symbolism of the news? So, yeah, the newspaper, you describe it as kind of a whitish gray. See, if you really do the analysis, it's really talking about the staleness of the common perception of fact. You know, <laughs> oh my God. Things like that. And oh, tell me you I, haven't experienced that. I know, I've experienced that in high school, and it made me hate literature classes. Well, when you but, start devolving a story around symbolism and interpretation. And, and, so, and oftentimes, when you pull the author in, the first thing they'll say is, yeah, no. the newspaper's just a newspaper. <laughs> it was just a, it was a MacGuffin. It was a thing he needed yeah. to go get to yeah. get that interaction. Because everybody to goes and gets newspapers. To well, read the news. It's right. something that the people do, just like they drink a cup of coffee. The cup of coffee doesn't represent anything. Man's inhumanity to man. No, it doesn't. <sighs> and so this we've got that same kind of dynamic that happens in every creative media. And I think we see that a lot in video games, too. People ascribe depth and context or intent. When sometimes the intent is just a, well, why did you choose Nazis? Well, I chose Nazis because of the setting. And... um. Everybody hates Nazis. <laughs> well, it's not because I'm, you know, saying that anti I'm not anti-fascist. Well, I am anti-fascist, but that wasn't the goal in the game. Yeah. You know, and, and we have a lot of those kind of deep analyses going on in video games. Too. Over analysis. We want to subscribe and ascribe to very different words, meaning to sometimes meaningless things. 
And we see that when we talk about what, how do you as a creator respond? We put this podcast out every time we put the podcast out. I'm not going to put a period of time on it because we never seem to hit it. We put it out every single common period of time. Yes. Every time we publish a podcast, we have to realize that regardless of what words we use, somebody can take what we say and completely interpret it. it differently. That happens in life. I mean, you you will say something you don't mean to say something, and somebody will interpret it differently. And you and again, that's that's human interaction. Yeah, um, conversations are all about changing the worldview of the person you're talking to and your own worldview. Right. Two people enter a conversation if they are not willing to change their perspectives on anything. It's not actually a conversation. I have this conversation with my wife. It doesn't usually go over well, <laughs> but. And when we talk about games taking on a life of their own, we can also abandon creative pursuits and somebody else can come along and add to it. Like these movies um, by this kid from California about, you know, a war in the past in the stars. Yeah. Uh, You know, Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. No, that was about the Mormon diaspora. But um... (laughs) anyway, the point is that Sometimes people come along and pick up something like an old game that was popular but maybe didn't resonate, and they can breathe new life into it. And if the creators allow, and the publishers in this case, again, commercial products, allow somebody to take that and expand, it can often lead to good things. But more often than not, your assessment of the results turn into a Mary Sue fan fiction novel. And we live that we live that every day with the internet now, with yeah. with the the tools that we have available compared to the tools ten twenty years ago. You know, we can get a you remake. can publish your own novel for nothing. Somebody can take um, Mary Poppins and turn the trailer into a horror film, which is hilarious. Right now, is that ever the you know was that ever the intent of the movie? No, absolutely not. Do the creators appreciate that? Maybe, maybe well, she's not. Dead. They find the humor in that. <laughs> I doubt but she would find the humor in that. We're breathing actually. life into that property. Yeah, it, it's a what was Mary Poppins? Oh, it's this movie that's nothing like this trailer. And and but now remix, I want to see it. We're, we're in that remix culture, right? Yeah. You know, if you sample somebody's music, do you own it? All this stuff doesn't matter. If somebody's doing something new with it, you know, I live, uh, I do photography on the side, mm-hmm. and. Um, in the early 2000s, you know, there was a lot of concerns of if you, in the internet, you can just take a picture and publish it somewhere. And really it's not kosher to do. Right. You lose copyright. It's copyright, right? That's my photo. I took it. You don't have permission to move that somewhere and show somebody. And there was something called the creative commons that was uh, released to kind of help legally mitigate these issues where basically you could say, yes. I will allow you to publish this wherever you want with these certain guidelines. You can't use this for commercial use. I don't want you to remix this. I don't want you. I want, and you have to attribute me. No matter what you do, mm-hmm. you have to attribute me. And it's a really progressive look on copyright. Right. Right. It's 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 referencing the original creator. Say like here, go here. This is the original content, but this is my take on it. Or this is this is something I want to talk about. This. But that's a licensing. Idea. It is. That is licensed. Again, we're back to contracts and legal. Again, it goes all back to legality. But I mean, just the idea of 
you know, we, we live in that culture where it's almost inevitable. Somebody's going to take. Well, something. how many people do PowerPoint presentations by Googling some visual off the Internet and then drop it in their PowerPoint? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, when you explain that to somebody, it's like you don't legally own this op. You know, you can't do that. You're Yeah. And, or you need to cite or buy permissions to use. How, this. You remember college. You need to cite your work. Yeah. You can't just say this is you've got a reference where you got. And your work can't be a link to Google. No, but Wikipedia. I I don't know. We've kind of ranged broad and wide on this. This has gone not in the direction you probably intended. I don't have a direction. It's it's a discussion. It is. It is. And I think we've had an interesting discussion here. So you're right. I mean, ultimately, it's a matter of these games. These things take a life of their own. Mm -hmm. I, I guess if they if they have an impact on people. That, yeah. That's what it's about. It's about the, the impact is what drives somebody to do something. You don't take something that had no impact on you and invest hours to do something else with it. Right. Right. Uh, Alas, Babylon is a book I was forced to read in high school. And, and I still have – I would not call them fond memories of that novel. I would not write a continuation of that world because I didn't enjoy it. Now, I might take something like – a video game that I enjoyed and try and expand some side story on that because it had an impact on me and I care about it. Nobody else may care about it, right? Blaster Master didn't need a sequel. Um, but I wanted to try that, so I did it. And I'm speaking hypothetically. No, I don't have a secret version of Blaster Master in my house. Um, it kind of got me excited. <laughs> um, but it, again, it's, it's about... Do where we see these things happening is when somebody becomes passionate about it. Right, right. So and I guess I will leave this topic open for the fans, the listeners. Has there been a fan-inspired work, mod, hack, a fan game that you're like, oh my gosh, this is this is awesome. It's really changed my view on the game. It wanted me to get into games. It was nice seeing somebody else doing something different with it. Or are you sort of like where I am, where it's sort of like, yeah, okay, cool. You can play as Randy Macho Man Savage for two seconds and haha. So, so, and I'll, I'll put my view a little differently than yours. Thank you. Which is, as somebody who once trained to be a creative person, which is ironic if you think about it, um, I view anybody's attachment to something creative and wanting to expand or fulfill it as a noble endeavor. That doesn't mean the product of that endeavor is any good, but if it gets you as the person who's engaged in the creativity to do something on their own, to do something creative, there's nothing better in the world than that. That's a good final thought. Let's leave it there. Okay. That's our final thought. Thank you, Sean. Um, before we leave you this week, we've got one dumb thing for you. Are you um, ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready for this. Hey, Disney, why are you keep why do you keep remaking your same movies shot by shot and live action? Stop it. All right. Beauty and the Beast. I saw it. I saw it again. And now I've seen the live action version. It was completely and totally unnecessary. It actually looks worse than the animated version. Because people in those scenes are fine. It's great. Now I know what Gaston looks like. Oh, okay. I didn't I already knew it. I didn't need this. But 
excusing that Beauty and the Beast is a story centered mostly around people. Do you know what the... Well, we got Mulan coming up, right? Again, don't and, need that. And Lion King. That's where I was going. How are you going to do a live action Lion King exactly? We're going to train a bunch of animals. Or or CGI. Oh, it's going to be CGI. No! It's going to be CGI. CGI. And, and the CGI, honestly, is the biggest problem with Beauty and the Beast. Because the Beast does... I hate to say this. No, actually, I don't hate to say this. I'm going to revel in this. The Beast in the live action movie is far less scary than the Beast in the animated movie. He's intimidating. He's frightening. The animators had a masterful, masterful capability to make that animated character intimidating. The CGI in the new movie didn't impact me at all. I was thinking as you were saying all this. First off, John Oliver is going to be Zazu and Lion King. That would be worth it. Well, right you can't bring Rowan Atkinson <laughs> back from the dead just um, for this. But... Well, this may lead into another topic at some point. The remake. I think we need to talk about remakes, actually. Because we're seeing a lot of remakes. If you look at... Uh, Maybe a non-video game-centric Yeah, subject, if you look yeah. at NBC, they've done a bunch of musicals, remakes of uh, uh, don't, don't Sound know. of Music and all this other stuff. Grease Live. Grease Live. Rocky seen, Horror. Rocky Horror, Which yeah. was Rocky Horrible. You're seeing a lot of uh, sort of, well different takes there well the this thing. is another playoff our nostalgia topic yeah. it keeps coming back doesn't it it does do we just live in a world that's living in its own past and, i think i think you know kind of i think we are i have some very impolite ways of saying what i think's going on but it's called creative circle jerk um but uh yeah stop and if you're somebody who's supporting these i mean i kind of understand why you want to see that same story again but go Buy the Lion King. It's still well, that's, available. That's the thing I don't understand is like people want to go see it to see how bad it's going to be and to be like, well, it's obviously not as. It's like the whole movie book thing that we dealt with in the nineties. <laughs> well, it's not as good as the book, and now it's it's not as good as the first original movie. Well, yeah, because it's, it's an unnecessary remake. So remakes will be. It's on all the about printing point. more cash for the Disney Power Machine the power machine well sean thank you hey uh, you know we should do this more often we should uh don't forget to subscribe don't forget to like us on twitter at four score seven pongs facebook four score seven pongs and our website four score seven pongs by the way i meant to ask you yeah do you have the password for our twitch page i do somewhere because <laughs> we need to get that moving we do i logged in or tried to log into it this weekend and i'm like i don't know the password as soon as i get some spare time we should investigate that will do all right thank you everybody we will talk to you let us know what you think we yeah. want to know what you the fan what you're are we impacting you and do you, if you've got suggestions on how we can improve the show we might listen yeah except that mid mid music stuff we're still <laughs> doing that it's still our thing guys yeah sorry creative control 